We're turning to the book of Hosea and uh, chapter 9 this morning. Hosea chapter 9. Just remember you have the… Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, so you have uh, the big prophets, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then the book of Hosea. So, Hosea chapter 9. So, find the big prophets and go forward until you find the first of the minor prophets. So, Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have pled the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim uh, shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity, he will punish their sins. The grapes in the wilderness I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them uh, till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. That's a strong language, isn't it? God began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Amen. I mean, God will bless the reading of His own inspired Word. The Christian is to be a person whose life is characterized by joy. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. The Christian is to be a joyful person. 
And I suppose nowhere is that joy to be more manifested in the worship services where a number of believers come together and rejoice together in what God has done for them. Yet the unexpected message of Hosea 9 is that there are times when joyful is the very last thing the believer ought to be, especially at church services. Indeed, there are times in worship services when it's not only inappropriate for joy to be present, but it's actively forbidden by God. Notice the opening words of chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. Do not rejoice, O Israel, says the NIV. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. Now, that unexpected prohibition on joy is all the more remarkable when you realize that this sermon was first preached by Hosea at the Feast of Tabernacles. There are a number of clues to that fact in the passage. Now, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was Israel's harvest thanksgiving service. It was celebrated in the autumn when the crops had been harvested and gathered in. It was one of the three main uh, feasts of the year, closer in its general air of merriment to our Christmas than anything else in our calendar. There were holidays for the children, presents to be exchanged, parties to attend, loads to eat and drink, and of course, special religious services to mark the occasion. Just as we cut down trees and decorate our homes with holly, so it was traditional in Israel to camp outside for a week in little booths, tents, ramshackle houses, tabernacles, to remind them of their history so that when for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. That's why it was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The religious services that were held during the feast were characterized by great festivity, revelry, and joy. Indeed, out of the three great annual feasts in Israel, tabernacles was a time that the people of God were not only allowed to enjoy themselves, they were commanded to enjoy themselves. Moses said in Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 and 14, you shall keep the feast of booths or tabernacles seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and winepress. You shall rejoice at your feast. You shall rejoice. In fact, it's in the light of that commandment that Nehemiah rebukes the Israelites for looking sad during the Feast of Tabernacles. In Nehemiah 8 and verse 10, he says, Go and enjoy choice food and uh, sweet drinks. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So if ever there was a time, a period of the year, when worshiping God ought to be characterized with joy, it was this. But it's on this very occasion, in the midst of all this gaiety and glee of this annual jamboree, that Hosea stands up uh, and in a voice laden with gloom says, Rejoice not, O Israel! Exult not like the people's. All the other nations can rejoice and be full of joy at this harvest thanksgiving service, but not you. Rejoicing is out of place. Even on this special week, the collective worship of God is not a place to be happy. It's a place to weep. 
And our task this morning is from the passage to try and identify what it was about the people of God in Hosea's day that warranted this morbid prohibition uh, on joy. And there are four such reasons. The people of God may not rejoice when the worship of God has been neglected. The Feast of Tabernacles was the harvest thanksgiving service, thanking God for His gracious provision of crops and food that would sustain them through the barren winter months. It was an external acknowledgement that all that they had and all that they enjoyed was from God. It had been given to them by God. It was a result of God's graciousness to them. That was the whole point of living out in fields and little tents and little booths to remind them that God had brought them from their wilderness wanderings when they lived in tents for 40 years into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Notice how these people in Hosea's day had corrupted the Feast of Tabernacles. Look again at verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Do you see that? Those who have been following this, these uh, studies in Hosea will know that the a problem of Hosea's day was that they had abandoned the pure, unadulterated worship of Yahweh, and they had been infatuated with this fertility god Baal. Now, the basic philosophy or thinking behind Baal worship was that if Baal became sexually excited, uh, uh, fertility then would come to the land. So, all kinds of promiscuity was used in the worship of Baal to arouse Baal so that fertility would come to the land. And throughout his prophecy, Hosea picks this up and, and likens Israel to one of the prostitutes, both men and women, that were employed at the shrines of Baal to arouse the passions of Baal uh, so that fertility would come to the land. Chapter 1 and verse 2, for the Lord commits great prostitution by forsaking the Lord. Chapter 3, she is an adulteress loved by another. Chapter 5 and verse 4, for the spirit of prostitution is within her. You see, Israel was not only guilty of actual prostitution, and going to these shrines and employing the services of these prostitutes, but she had prostituted herself to this false god to Baal. And the price that Baal pays for Israel's services is a plentiful harvest. That's what verse 1 is saying. For you have played the whore, uh, forsaking your god. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all your threshing uh, floors. Israel, well, the authorized version says, had gone a whoring from God, and the price that she receives is the harvest on the threshing floor. Israel had convinced herself that the bumper harvest she had been enjoying was a direct result of her worship of Baal. These harvests were proof of how effective Baal worship was. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all your threshing floors. Now, remember the purpose of the Feast 
of tabernacles to thank God for the harvest, to worship God for His provision for them. And what did these people do? They saw their harvest as the payment of the fertility God bill for the sexual services they rendered. They had forgotten it was God who filled the threshing floor and the wine presses. There's a little jab there in verse 3. I don't know if you noticed it. They have not remained in the land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not remain, sorry, in the land of the Lord. Do you notice that? In the land of the Lord. It wasn't their land. It wasn't Baal's land. It was God's land. And He would remove them from it, and they would have nothing. And after pronouncing judgment on these people and saying that the harvest will fail and the people will be removed from the land, look at what he says in verse 5. What will you do on the day of your appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? What are you going to do this time next year at the Feast of Tabernacles when there's no harvest to give thanks for? God was going to remove His harvest from His thankless people. So here were a people who instead of thanking God at the Feast of Tabernacles for His provision for them and for their prosperity, they saw the the harvest as a payment for their prostitution to Baal. So the people of God may not rejoice when the worship of God has been neglected, when gratitude to God has been neglected. Now, what about you? Are you grateful to God? Do you worship Him out of a heart that is overflowing with thankfulness to Him? The Bible reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, that He is the source of all that we enjoy in in this life. Every time we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are acknowledging that God is the source of all the temporal blessings that we enjoy. Are you living in the light of that statement? I'm not suggesting for one moment that you have abandoned the worship of Yahweh for the uh, worship of some pagan fertility god and tracing your economic prosperity and your temporal blessings to Him. What I'm saying is that it's all too easy to push God out of the picture and to attribute your success to that other false god yourself. I have done this. I have provided this. I have produced this. I have achieved this. Like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, surveying surveying his kingdom and saying, look at what my hands have done. That's what happened in Israel. God took away their fertility and their harvest to show them and to expose to them the uselessness of a fertility God. We may not rejoice when our worship of God, when our gratitude of God is uh, is neglected. Do you worship Him for all the good gifts that He has given? The food on your table, the homes that you live in, the employment that you have, all of those things are tokens of His goodness, gifts from His hand. What about the gift of salvation? 
What about the gift of, of grace? What about the gift of faith? What about the gift of His Spirit? All these things are from His hand. And the, the uh, account of the ten lepers uh, in the New Testament tells us how, how sinful and how grieving to God is thanklessness. So, the people of God should not rejoice when the worship of God is uh, neglected. Secondly, they should not rejoice when the Word of God is rejected. Look at verses 7 to 9. The day of, days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fouler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Oh, Hosea confides uh, a great deal to us about his domestic situation, his marriage, and the tragedy of that. We know very little about how he was regarded by his fellow Israelites. But in these few verses, he opens a window and gives us a brief glimpse of that side of things. And what we see is not very reassuring. He tells us that he found himself derided, mocked as a fool, ostracized, victimized, and scandalized. Every time he, he went out, he feels, there di- feels there's daggers in his back. He's subject to malignant glances. Every time he walks down the street, he feels people are setting snares for him, setting traps for him, that everybody's plotting against him. He's an unpopular man. Now, the reason for that unpopularity is given to us in verse 7. The prophet is a fool. The man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and your great hatred. That's the reason, because of your great iniquity. That's why you don't like me, Hosea says. That's why you plot against me. Because I'm a prophet who calls a spade a spade, calls sin sin, and calls iniquity iniquity. Hosea was merciless in his exposure of Israel's sin. We have a touch of that in verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember uh, their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. Now, to us, Gibeah is a, a, seems a, a rather obscure reference, but you can be sure it wasn't to the Israelite. Gibeah recalls a sordid incident in the days of Judges that every Israelite would rather have forgotten about, and it involved homosexual lust, gang rape, and murder, and the dissection of a body. You can read all about it in Judges 19, which resulted in a civil war uh, when 55,000 Israelites were put to death and the tribe of Benjamin was almost extinguished. But here he is at the harvest thanksgiving service, and he preaches and he insists that the worshipers at that service are no less corrupt than those who were involved at Gibeah. Undoubtedly, to many of these worshippers, it wasn't considered polite to talk about such things. You should draw a discreet veil over these things and refer to them only in the most indirect and euphemistic of terms. Not Hosea. He thundered it from the pulpit in language that our translators find hard to soften lest they shock us. 
To many, Hosea was an uncouth, loudmouthed, probably mentally unstable, and certainly socially undesirable. One simply doesn't speak about uh, those things, about homosexuals and whores and gang rape and debauchery. It's, it's not nice. It wasn't edifying. Call himself a man of God. A real man of God would be far too respectable to deal with such things. Now, it's not hard to imagine why Hosea, who addressed and confronted the sins of his society so directly and forcefully, was so unpopular. And the interesting thing was that Hosea's greatest opposition came from the religious establishment itself. Look at the end of verse 8. And hatred in the house of God. And hatred in the house of God. Hosea was more at risk at church than anywhere else. People who you would have expected to accept the Word, receive the Word, respond the Word, were angry at the Word. These were the very people who rejected it. You see, Hosea's preaching didn't make you feel good. It didn't impart warm, fuzzy feelings that you can pretend are spiritual. There were no blessed thoughts, no sentimental tugging at the heartstrings. To Hosea, the prophet was the watchman over Ephraim, answerable to the king, and whose job it was to shout a warning and not sing a lullaby. And true prophetic preaching will always do that. You will not always enjoy it, and be far too disturbing for that, too controversial, uh, too convicting for that. But there can be no happiness, no joy in a worship service when the worshipers reject and scorn the discomforting Word of God. And I do think that's why preaching is at a premium in many churches today, because preaching that disturbs is not preaching that is desired. And any preacher that is honest with the Word of God will offend his congregation from time to time but there can be no joy uh, experienced unless the Word of God is central, reflected uh, upon, and accepted by the people of God. It was Robert Murray McShane who said, the church that despises preaching, God will despise her. So there should be no joy uh, in our lives and in our services when the worship of God is neglected, when the Word of God is rejected, when our love for God is diluted. Look at verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I find Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Can you sense the note of wistful nostalgia in verse 10? It's, it's rather reminiscent of looking at an old photograph album and remembering what things like, were like years ago. God says to Israel, when I, I found you, when I saw you in the wilderness, those were the good old days, when our relationship was new and there was such an intensity of affection and love between us. It was like finding grapes in the wilderness. It was like the first fruit of the fig tree uh, in, in, uh, at the beginning of the season. In a world of moral decadence and spiritual darkness, finding Israel was an unexpected taste of pleasure for God. 
We used to have an apple tree and, uh, at home, and it never had, never bore any apples. And after 10 years, we gave up looking for apples. And then I happened just one day to discover uh, an apple growing, one apple, just, just one. And the delight and the excitement over that one apple was, was great. This is what it was like for, for God and His relationship with Israel. It was like discovering grapes in the desert or early figs out of season. Israel and God were so happy, so delighted in one another in those early days when He led them in the wilderness and they defeated all their enemies before them as they came uh, uh, made their way to the promised land. But then they came, came to Baal Peor. Balak king of Moab sent out his young women to seduce the weak-willed Israelite warriors and entice them over the border to Baal Peor. And it was there the Israelites were first introduced to the licentious worship of this fertility god, Baal. And ever since that time, Baal had been a rival to Yahweh in the affections of his people. He had infected the people of God. He had diluted the love of the people of God. Everything was good up until that point when Israel was seduced by the worship of Baal. Her pure, unadulterated love for Yahweh was diluted and compromised. Look at the end of verse 10. Uh, the end of verse 10, and became detestable like the thing she loved. She ought to have loved her legitimate, rightful husband, Yahweh, who found her in the wilderness, but instead she loved the vile, corrupting, degrading worship of this pagan fertility god, Baal. Do you remember the days when God first called you to Himself? Do you recall how you felt the sheer delight of being His child, of coming to church and worshiping Him with His people? Um, Has that relationship deepened like a marriage relationship ought to deepen, uh, deepened and grown over the years so that your love is deeper now than it was even then? Or has that love been lost? How does he remember you? With the bitterness and disappointment of a man whose wife has been unfaithful to him and destroyed that first love. Where is your Baal Peor? Where is that place in your spiritual journey and your spiritual experience where a, another rival entered your affections and delighted and diluted your love for God? Who seduced you? Who stole your heart from God? Ambition, materialism, sheer neglect, not cultivating that relationship, but they came to be pure. Has your love declined? Have you forsaken your first love? You remember our Lord's words to the church at Ephesus, yet I have this against you, you have forgotten your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Do you remember where you once were? And do you remember where you are now? Is there a difference between your affection, your love, and your commitment to Him? Where is your Baal Peor? What is your Baal? Who has stolen your heart, infiltrated your heart, and diluted your love for God? 
There ought to be no joy in our worship when we have a divided heart, when a a rival has pushed out our first love. How can we come to worship Him, wanting to know the joy of the Lord when there's a rival uh, in our affections uh, for Him? What is it? Who is your Baal? Where is your Baal Peor? Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from the throne and worship only Thee. Do you remember the challenge that we mentioned a few weeks ago of Elijah on Mount Carmel? Uh, If Baal is God, then follow Him. If Jehovah is God. If Yahweh is God, then follow Him. His challenge was calculated to put to death the duplicity of the syncretistic practices of the professing people of God. And that challenge comes to us afresh this morning. If, if, if these other loves are your God, follow them. Give yourself to them. Enjoy them. But if Yahweh is God, and follow Him. Do you remember the joy you had when first you knew the Lord, your delight in Him? It was like finding grapes in the desert, but now that joy is gone, and it's left you empty and lonely and frustrated. There's no one as miserable as a backslidden Christian. You can see it in their faces, not that artificial benign grin, oblivious to the realities of life, But unlike men and women of the world, God will not permit Christians who have strayed for Him to enjoy themselves. There can be no joy for the Christian when the worship of God is neglected, when the Word of God is rejected, when our love for God is diluted, and when, finally, the judgment of God is expected. This is one of the dominant themes in the book of Hosea, the expected judgment of God. The book alternates between these two themes of the extraordinary love and patience of God and the wrath and judgment of God on a stubborn and unrepentant people. And that theme of judgment is struck again in chapter 9. Now, of these people, uh, if these people had sinned against God by deserting Him in favor of a fertility God, Baal, what would be the appropriate judgment? What would be the judgment God would send. I'm not saying that the judgment described here is the same judgment that will be experienced today, but remember it's a fertility God that they had uh, forsaken Yahweh for. And, and so, what is the appropriate judgment for that? Well, the irony of Hosea 9 is that the judgment against Israel would be infertility, infertility in the land and infertility in the family. They, they, uh, they worship a fertility God, and God punished them with infertility. Look at verse 16. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. The land and the women of Israel would be infertile. Verse 2, threshing floor and wine shall not feed them and the new wine shall fill them. 
Verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. And so often, you see, the, the very thing that takes us from God is the very thing that God judges us with. So a man who starts off as a king Christian and invests all his time in his business so that his Christian life is pushed further and further down his list of priorities discovers that his business goes bust. Another's heart is divided divided, uh, by his career, and he loses his job. A woman devotes all her energy and affection to bringing up her children at the expense of her spiritual life, and the child rebels against them. A man lives a life of sexual promiscuity, only to discover that he has an illegitimate child. A man leaves his wife for a younger woman, and then in turn she leaves him for a younger man. And the point is that God does judge sin in a way that is so often in keeping with that sin. Notice verse 12, "'Woe to them when I depart from them. Woe to them when I depart from from them.'" Do you remember what I said at the beginning? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. But these people were thankless. They thanked Baal instead of God for their harvest. So what does God do? He withdraws from them. So it's a wonderful picture of common grace that when, when God is with them, God blesses them and blesses them abundantly. But when He withdraws, all blessings are gone. So God says, you think you can do without me? You think you can live without me? You think you can get through life without me? Well, well, I'm going to withdraw, and let's just see what happens. You prefer sin to me? Well, let's see what happens when I withdraw and you reap the consequences of that sin. It's a terrible thing to be abandoned by God, to be deserted by God to have God withdraw from you and leave you to the consequences of your own actions. You know, in, in Psalm 51, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating psalm where David is uh, confronted by Nathan the prophet. He confesses his sin, and then he writes this psalm, this penitential psalm in response He cries from his heart, Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He desires the the forgiveness of God. And he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. For 18 months, perhaps up to 18 months, David was miserable. God had withdrawn from him. There was no sense of God in his relationship with God, and he cries out in the psalm, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I've heard endless explanations about that was the old covenant and that wasn't the new covenant, but God would never do that. But sometimes God does withdraw from us to let us feel the draft of a life without Him. And He withdraws from us. And uh, uh, David prays that the Lord would not cast him from his presence or take his Holy Spirit from him. 
And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He had lost his joy, the joy of being a believer and being in relationship with God had gone. Joy had disappeared. And he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, the joy that I had when first I came to know you. And how does that take place? How does joy return? He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not take pleasure in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so, when a a believer comes acknowledging that, that he has strayed, that his joy is gone, if he comes with that sense of brokenness and contrition, knowing, O God, and knowing that, that, that he had sinned against God, that, that God will forgive him, that God will accept him, that God will receive him, and that God will restore to him once more the joy of his salvation. Are you a joyful person this morning? Or has your joy gone? Could it be that God has withdrawn from you? in order to let you feel the draft of living a life uh, without Him, in order that He would bring you back and bring you uh, to Himself. Maybe you're not even a Christian, and you don't even know what we're talking about because you've never experienced that joy. You, you don't know what the joy of sins forgiven. You don't know the joy of being in a relationship with God. You don't know the joy of of knowing that, uh, that there's nothing that affects your relationship with God and disturbs your relationship with God because that sin has been paid for on the cross and that sin has been taken away and uh, that you're filled with a, a, an inexpressible and unspeakable joy. Well, then you need to come with that sense of brokenness knowing that a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Funeral yesterday, I was saying that, uh, that Philip, when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he, he attended a coffee bar in Hollywood, and, uh, and the speaker was at the front, and when he had finished, he prayed, and he, he asked um, those present who, who felt God was speaking to them just to lift their heads during the prayer so he could make eye contact with them and identify them so he, so he could speak to them uh, afterwards. But so overwhelmed was he with a sense of the, the holiness and the greatness of God that he couldn't even lift his head up to look at the speaker. And in that, that moment, he, he came to faith, and, and the joy that had been absent filled his heart and he knew the peace of God ruling and reigning there. The people of God, and even the unbeliever, must not rejoice when the worship of God is neglected, when the Word of God is rejected, when our love to God is diluted, when the judgment of God is expected. It's a terrible thing for God to withdraw, for God to pull back, and say, well, you want to live independently? That's the life that you want? Okay, 
live without me and see what happens. Amen.